We are in the book of Matthew right now. We're going to be in the book of Matthew for three more weeks. Then I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks, uh, seeing some adult children. And then uh, we're going to begin uh, starting the uh, like June 9th or whatever that day is. Uh, series in the book of uh, in the book of Daniel this summer and into the fall. Just thinking with just how much focus is on the nation of Israel right now and the centrality of Daniel in the whole discussion of end times. Uh, I think it'll be a good study for us. So that's where we're going. We're going to be um, these weeks in Matthew and then we'll pick up Matthew again down the road. Um, but uh, today we are finishing chapter 12. We'll be looking at verse 38 down through the end of the chapter. We've noted that in this section of chapters 11, 12, and 13, Matthew is recording for us the fact that the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. Individuals still come to faith in Jesus, but as a nation... Israel has rejected Jesus Christ. And Matthew's main purpose in writing has been to show that Jesus is indeed Israel's Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. The Greek equivalent to that word is Christos or Christ. And it all goes back to promises like 2 Samuel 7... Where God said that his, uh, that David's descendant will reign on David's throne forever and ever over a kingdom of righteousness. And that that son of David would be known as the son of God. And so Matthew has been showing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The anointed one promised in 2 Samuel 7. And Jesus has been fulfilled. Filling Old Testament prophecies proving that he is that one. But Israel has come to a point where they have rejected that truth. In fact, last week in chapter 12, verse 30 down through verse 37, we talked about the passage that Bible teachers refer to as the unpardonable sin. And we unpacked that a little bit. In brief overview, we noted that that is only... Uh, committed by people who do not trust Jesus Christ, by non-Christians. And Jesus warned about the fact that there's no such thing as being neutral when it comes to Jesus. Having an attitude like, well, sometime down the road, I will make a decision about what I believe about the person of Jesus Christ. But right now, I don't really want to think about it. I've got too many other things In my life, I don't really want to think about Jesus right now. There's no such thing as Jesus' neutrality. In fact, in verse 30 of chapter 12, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. And the real danger that Jesus warns about in that verse is right after that, a person like Israel's religious leaders were only one step away And thinking that they're neutral, we're really only one step away from a willful, in full knowledge, rejection of the person of Jesus Christ. 
And when a person stands in willful rejection of the person of Jesus Christ, knowing who he is, knowing who he claims to be, when they stand in that rejection, they're not going to be forgiven of their sin. Well, today in chapter 12, starting in verse 38, these same religious leaders, it refers to the scribes, the teachers of the Old Testament law. They knew the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone. They knew the promises of Messiah. They knew Isaiah 42 through 53, talking about the fact that Messiah would suffer to take away the sin of the world. They, they knew passages like Psalm 2. They knew 2 Samuel 7. And they saw Jesus fulfilling these passages and yet they chose to reject him. The scribes and the Pharisees are coming back to Jesus and saying, we want a miracle. Well, they've already rejected Jesus' miracles. In fact, we saw two weeks ago that a man who was possessed by a demon, he could not see and he could not speak because of the demon. Jesus cast out the demon. He could once again see. He could once again speak. Probably someone that those who were around him had known most of their lives. The religious leaders couldn't say, well, this is just fake. This They just brought in somebody from the outside. No, he was their neighbor. So they could not reject what Jesus did. So they rejected how Jesus did it. And they said, oh, he just does that by the power of Satan. A willful, purposeful, knowledgeable rejection of Jesus Christ. These same ones, these Pharisees and these scribes, now come in this section and say, we want to see a sign. Probably what they're asking for is like a miracle on demand, like an insta-miracle. Some of you may have bought an insta-pot in your kitchen. Well, this is an insta-miracle. We want it now. Just prove yourself now. And Jesus is going to tell them, there's only one sign left that I'm going to show you. And that is the sign of his own resurrection from the dead. So I'm going to read this passage out loud. And if you you can follow along in your copy of the Bible, starting in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea, monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. 
Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he was speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, in these verses, takes us to the very foundation of Christianity. He takes us to the resurrected Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of our faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that Jesus is God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is that very crux of faith. So much so that if someone denies the resurrection, they cannot be a Christian. And Jesus here, of all that he could do, as these ones who come to him in disbelief say, we want another sign. He gives them the very heart of our belief system. You know, we've talked about the fact that people can reject Jesus Christ to such an extent that at some point in time, they will not ever turn to him in faith. We don't know someone's heart though. And so it's important for us to continue to talk with people about Jesus. To continue to share the hope that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. I came home the other day and told Barbara, I said, sometimes I just feel so marginalized as a Christian. In the culture in which we live, if we really choose to live the way the Bible says that we should live... The people around us really think we're pretty strange. I mean, if we really believe what the Bible says and live that out, we are going to hold to values that are very much different from the world around us. So different that as the world around us looks at us, they just think these people are really weird. Now that's okay. Jesus told us, that people are not going to accept us following him because they didn't accept him. Every week, there's several of us pastors, we actually gather in that room right back there and we pray for our city. We pray for an outpouring of the Spirit of God. Do you know that half of our metro area has no church connection at all 47% consider themselves nothing no church affiliation at all 47% half the people in our city have no church at all 
we've been praying that for months that, 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 that God will do a mighty outpouring of his spirit and raise us up as pastors, raise up our church families to go into the fields that are white unto harvest, to take this good news about Jesus to people who desperately need him, even though many don't recognize that. And what they really need to hear is the good news that Jesus did not stay in the grave. And so here, when these ones, once again, in their disbelief, come and say, okay, let's have an instant miracle, Jesus is going to take them to the very thing that they do need to hear. That in the very near future, he will prove that he is God by his resurrection. Well, let's unpack it. Starting in verses 38 down through verse 45. Even though these religious leaders asked for a miracle, Jesus has already said, miracles are not enough to bring people to faith in Jesus. He's already told those cities in Galilee that they have had more miracles shown to them than anybody else. And yet Gentile cities, if they would have had the same miracles performed there, they would have repented a long time ago. Miracles do not bring repentance. Jesus rising from the dead proves that he's God. And it's the risen Savior by his Holy Spirit that brings people to Jesus Christ. Why is it so important that we pray? Why don't we just do? Because there's nothing that we in and of ourselves can do to make somebody become a Christian. We cannot articulate a tight enough enough logical argument to make somebody become a Christian. We can't do it. Jesus Christ, the risen Savior by his Holy Spirit, is the one that brings people to faith. And so ultimately we pray and ask him to raise us up and ask him to do his work in people's lives. All around that central truth that Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave. And so here in verse 38 it says. And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him. Teacher we want to see a sign from you. They've already rejected his miracles. Most likely they want an instant showing. An instant miracle. And Jesus says no. You're an evil and adulterous generation. And throughout the Old Testament, God will use that word adultery not to refer to physical adultery, but to refer to spiritual adultery. That Israel's leadership here has been claiming that they're close to God, but their hearts are far from him. And so he says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. You're craving for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And he explains in the very next verse what he means by that. Verse 40. But just as Jonah was three days 
In three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now remember, when Jesus uses that phrase, Son of Man, that title, Son of Man, he's referring back to Daniel chapter 7, where in Daniel 7, it's clear that that's a reference to Messiah. So when Jesus uses it in reference to himself, he's clearly saying, I'm him, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that fulfills 2 Samuel 7. And he said, this is the last sign I will give to you. Just as Jonah went into the belly of the great fish and came out again on the third day, so also I will go into the belly of the earth, simply meaning the grave, and on the third day rise again. Jesus here is referring to his resurrection from the dead. One of my favorite professors at Dallas Theological Seminary was a man named J.D. Pentecost. And Pentecost in class one day said this, and I wrote it down. In the sermons in Acts, Christ's resurrection is stressed because it is the resurrection, not the death, that proves Jesus is God. Satan cannot create life. Therefore, Satan cannot resurrect. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proves that he is God. Romans chapter 1, the first four verses, that's the Apostle Paul's point. I'll read those verses. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the resurrection that declares that Jesus Christ is indeed God. And we don't know ultimately what is inside of a person's heart. Jesus tells these religious leaders that they are a adulterous group of people because they claim to be close to God and their hearts are so far from him. In fact, he goes on to illustrate here in verses 40 and 41, excuse me, verse 41 and 42, that the Gentiles are more responsive to the word of God than they are. He uses the illustration of when Jonah did go to the Ninevites and gave them God's message. What did the Ninevites do in the book of Jonah? They repented. Then down in verse 42, he returns to the queen of south, queen of the south. He's talking about 1 Kings chapter 10 verses 1 through 13, where the queen of Sheba travels all the way to Israel to hear the words of Solomon. Jesus' point is that Gentiles are more open to hearing God's word than you are, God's people, Israel's leadership. In fact, he drives the point home in a common phrase at the end of verse 41 of verse 42. At the end of verse 41, it says, something greater than Jonah is here. End of verse 42, something greater than Solomon here is here. He, the something greater is him. It's Jesus and his message. He says, the Gentiles responded better to God's word as they responded to Jonah 
and as they responded to Solomon. But something's greater than Solomon and Jonah here. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah and his message of the kingdom. And yet, Israel's leaders continue to reject, to push away. And then in verses 43 through 45, he goes back and again affirms what he has just said in verse 30 about there not being anything as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Remember verse 30? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. There's no category for being Jesus neutral. And he compares Israel's leaders to a man who had been freed from a demon. And during John the Baptist preaching, there are many that really gave serious thought to what John the Baptist was saying about the upcoming Messiah. But then they just walked away. And what Jesus is saying here is, Israel's leaders, you are like the man who had a demon. And that demon was cast from him, but you didn't make a decision for Christ. You didn't trust in Jesus' word. And then the demon just comes back with seven more. Meaning, they are firmed in their rejection of the person of Jesus Christ. And he's really going back to what we talked about last week. In chapter 12 verses 30 through 32. It is vital for us today. In this culture in which we live. Where people seem to have so much antagonism for the person of Jesus Christ. Antagonism for Christianity. Antagonism for what the Bible has to say. About about life. And the absolutes that the Bible says what is sin and what is not sin. And there's just the ire, the anger that that brings up today. It's imperative that we do just the same thing that Jesus does. And bring people back to Jesus Christ. And to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a myriad of things that people want to talk about when it comes to faith. We've got to steer people back. To Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. One of my instructors at Dallas Seminary years ago was teaching master's level classes but also working on his PhD. And after about three or four years it was time for him to defend his thesis, his PhD thesis, his dissertation. And he failed. He did not pass his orals. After all of those years of work. And he went home. And he was just crushed. All of those years down the tube. He's not going to get his doctorate. And his little child crawled up into his lap. Seeing how upset daddy was. And looked at dad and said. Daddy. Did they ask you a lot of questions about Jesus? And he got this big grin on his face because as he thought back over his oral defense, they didn't ask him one question about Christ. <laughs> and he, it just kind of changed his whole feeling about that and brought him back to the person of Jesus Christ. And he kind of said, you know what? So what? I don't have my doctorate. 
And he left Dallas Seminary and he went and became a military chaplain and had a great ministry. You know, there's so many things that we can focus on and we can, we can talk about within the Christian faith, but really the crux, the very heart of where we need to draw people's attention is simply this, the cross work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Ten words. That's where we need to take people as we talk with them, as we encourage them to still consider the claims of Jesus Christ, that he is God who died on the cross to pay the price for our sin, that he is the only bridge to God. He is the only pathway to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's Jesus' message. And so here, even though these ones come and say, hey, we need another miracle, Jesus said, you're only going to have one more miracle because miracles have not brought you to faith. Here it is. I'm going to go into the grave. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. Well, as Jesus has talked, someone in the crowd notices his mom and his half-brothers are there. Jesus, your mom's trying to get your attention. Your half-brothers are trying to get your attention. And Jesus makes a comment in these next verses that had to just stop his disciples right in their tracks. Jesus says, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? And they're probably thinking, what? You don't know your own mom? But what Jesus was doing was trying to teach a lesson. You see these religious leaders? They thought... That they were close to God. That they were right with God. Because of their heritage. Because of their physical lineage. Because of the family into which they were born. Because they were physically descendants of Abraham. Were right with God. And Jesus' point is very simple. Being part of the family of God does not come by physical birth. It doesn't make any difference if your mom and dad were followers of Jesus Christ. Being rightly related with God does not come by physical birth. It comes by faith in him, by spiritual birth. And so Jesus looks out and in the end of verse 46, or end of verse 49 says, Behold, my mother and my brothers, as he looks at his disciples... And then he says, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And he's talking about the fact that when a person does God's will, it shows that they are rightly related with him through faith. That when a person is really, has really put their trust in the person of Jesus Christ, who's rightly related to him by faith, There should be some fruit in that person's life. We should be able to see Christ lived out in their life. And if not, if someone claims to be a Christian, but there's nothing there to show that they have a walk with Jesus Christ, they probably need to go back and ask themselves, what am I depending on? 
Am I just thinking that I'm right with God because of my parents' faith? My grandparents' faith? Or because I go to church? Or have I personally trusted in the in Jesus Christ? My grandparents lived on a farm about eight miles south of Stewart, Iowa, and about six miles west, Adair County, Iowa. And about three, four miles west of them was an old country grocery store called Barrett's Superette. Everything in the community kind of revolved around Barrett's Superette. You could go get a grain grinder over there and grind some feed for your hogs. If you had a cow you wanted butchered or a hog you wanted butchered, you could take it over to Barrett's Superette. And they would butcher it for you and cut up the meat. My uncle was the butcher. Um, Barrett Superette was the hub of activity, including a gathering place. And it was amazing how little of an excuse my grandpa needed to go over to Barrett's. Like, I think we need some bananas. So we'd jump in the pickup and we'd go over to Barrett's at kind of the opportune time of the day so that he could see his buddies and drink some coffee, and he'd take me along. I was always amazed when we went to Barrett's Superette that the Barrett's sons, their two sons, ate whatever they wanted. In my eyes as a kid, I just, I, I, I just couldn't believe it. If they wanted an ice cream bar, they just went and took one and ate it. If they wanted soda, they just went to the machine and took out a Coke and drank it. They ate and they drank whatever they wanted. If they want some, wanted some lunch meat, they just went in the meat case and took it out and ate it. I thought, whoa, they own the place. Or they think they do because mom and dad does. They could just eat and drink whatever they wanted. Now that had its toll. My grandfather used to, I never did know their names. My grandpa just referred to them as Big Heavy and Little Heavy. (laughs) Big Heavy was the older of the two. Little Heavy was the younger one. So my entire life, I still don't know their first names. I just have always referred to them as Big Heavy and Little Heavy. For a while, Big Heavy rented our ground there. You see, they thought that since they were children of the father... They had privileges. And too often today, people falsely think that because they are children of the parents who have faith, that they have the same privileges. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I I, I went to church like every Sunday growing up. Or I go to church now and, and you know, I, 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 I have this, I'm in the same system mom and dad were in. In reality, Jesus' point here is that it doesn't really make a difference who your parents were. It doesn't make a difference if you were taken or not taken to worship. The difference in being true heirs of the father, being a true sibling to Jesus Christ, is not physical descent. It's how I have 
doubt with my own heart, my own mind, with the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Have I ever come to a point in my life where I have recognized that sin separates me from God and that I have realized I can't be a good enough person to, to pay for my sin, to put enough things on a scale to somehow outweigh my sin, and I have put my dependence, my belief, my trust in the fact that Jesus is God. He did die to pay the price for sin. And then rose again from the dead. Proving that he is God. You see that's the crux of our faith. That's what people need to hear from us. Even though people will try to take us down this pathway. Or this pathway. Or get us in an argument about some tenet of, of Christian faith. Always have to come back to the same thing that Jesus did here. I'll show you one more miracle. It's the miracle of the resurrection. Jesus Christ died for my sin. And rose from the grave. You see miracles and signs don't change hearts. Only the resurrected Christ. Brings people to faith. Father I thank you for these verses. For the hope we find in them and the reminder that Jesus is God. We pray that you would raise us up as a church. That we would see a mighty outpouring of your spirit through us. And that we would see more and more men and women and boys and girls come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use us. That you would work in people's hearts and lives. And that many would enter in our community into your kingdom through faith in Jesus. We pray this in his name. In Jesus name. Amen.